Thank you very much for your introduction, Helen, and also my thanks to uh, all the members of the Aristotelian Society, uh, and in particular those who are uh, helping me today. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen and hopefully, oh, I was going to say, hopefully I've done it enough that it won't be a problem. And I just got a message saying host disabled participant screen sharing. Uh, so I think you've got to enable me uh, so that I can uh, share my screen. Yes, now it's working. Okay, so just a second. Right. Okay. So you should be um, you should be able to uh, to see my screen now. This is the handout, and I'll try uh, not to forget to uh, scroll it down as I speak. So uh, I uh, in this paper, I focus on a book which was written almost uh, forty years ago, although not quite as a book. It's called in French Les Aveux de la Chair, The Confessions of the Flesh, and it only came out um, in in, two, in 2018. So it was published uh, recently uh, because of various dis um, and, 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 um, dispositions in Foucault's will. So what I'm focusing on in this book is the early Christian constitution of the self and in particular a key practice which is the examination confession. So Foucault characterizes the examination confession as quote, a form of experience understood at the same time as a mode of self-presence and a schema of self-transformation, end quote. Uh, the Confession of the Flesh is a very wide-ranging book, but I uh, focus on a particular author, John Cassian. Uh, Cassian was born roughly in uh, 360 AD, and he died in 435. That makes him an almost exact contemporary of Augustine, and the two, the two men knew, um, knew of each other. So, following Foucault, I approach Cassian's work as a case study affording us insights into the early Christian understanding of what it means to constitute and to experience oneself as an ethical agent. That's an agent who's capable, in as much as possible, of living their life in the light of what they understand as the good. And more specifically, I focus on the exercise of agency at work in this early Christian constitution of the self. So perhaps the first thing to note is that the idea of a constitution of the self is ambiguous, and that depends on whether the genitive of is understood as grammatically active or passive. So if you understand it as active, then the constitution of the self refers to an intentional process whereby selves constitute themselves. And if you understand the genitive as passive, then the constitution of the self becomes a causal process whereby cells are constituted by external factors applied to them. Now, both these aspects are operative in Foucault's previous analysis of the various historical forms of the constitution of the self, although I should say uh, they are operative, but they're rarely thematized as such. You have to reconstruct these two, um, these two aspects. So the first one bears mostly on Greek antiquity, Greek and Roman antiquity. Foucault says that, quote, the agent's comportment was an object for concern, an element for reflection, a material for stylization. You have that on, on the handout somewhere. Uh, 
So free male agents constituted themselves by forming reflective intentions and carrying out these intentions through what Foucault calls ephor poetical, so ethos producing techniques, uh, such as the ascetic techniques described by Xenophon. But in his work on the uh, 19th century discipline, However, Foucault had presented the constitution of a self as a resulting from process applied to, uh, not by, the self. So on that second picture, the self is constituted by disciplinary processes which bypass consciousness and target directly the bodies of individuals, you know, disciplines such as arranging timetables, time uh, arranging uh, the space, uh, producing uh, a list of appropriate bodily movements in definite uh, in special circumstances and so forth. So these processes operate in controlled environments such as barracks or prisons, and in all these cases, there's no experience of oneself as an ethical agent. That's actually the whole point of a discipline, is that, is that they produce subjects, as Foucault say, uh, says, sorry, but without this being mediated by uh, any reflective process from the part of uh, the individual. So far from being in the driver's seat, as Foucault says, quote, the modern soul is nothing but an effect of a training of bodies. So we have two opposite views. Either the self is in reflective control of its own constitution, as in Greek and Roman antiquity, or it is constituted in ways unbeknownst to it, as in the 19th century disciplines. Now, my hunch when I started working on this is that in Foucault's study of early Christianity, we might have um, elements to think of the constitution of the self differently. So here is uh, a quote which I find interesting. Germanus, if only compunctio penitentius could be recalled at our own will. For sometimes, when I am desirous to, steer, sorry, to stir myself up with all my power to the same conviction and tears, I am unable to bring back that copiousness of tears. And so do I mourn that I cannot Bring back, sorry, but I cannot bring it back whenever I wish. So it's an interesting model, I think, because it falls in between uh, the two previous characterizations. Germanus does not understand himself as passively determined by external causes or processes. He has formed a reflective intention, uh, namely to stir himself up with all his power to the same conviction and tears, and he would like to carry that out, but he finds himself unable to do so. So his experience of himself as an ethical agent is one of mourning, as he says, for a power he does not have. But mourning does not fit the dichotomy between active self-constitution and passive determination that I've just sketched out. It can be seen both as something that happens to us and as something that we do. It can be viewed as an emotional response to profoundly sad circumstances and as an intentional act carried out through specific forms and rituals. That's not an isolated case. In fact, many key practices of the early Christian constitution of the self, and in particular one which we're going to discuss quite a bit, namely extreme obedience, are presented in Cassian, by Cassian, both as acts which are performed by the self for its own constitution, and as involving neither agential control, 
nor the formation of reflective intention. So it's quite a paradoxical model. And really the question for me today is how are we to make sense of these early Christian experiences and practices of self-constitution? So there's four, four parts to the paper. First, I set up a contrast case and I turn, to do that, I turn to, the, uh, to Foucault's analysis, in fact, of Roman antiquity here and tease out two puzzles about agency, which are specific to this uh, early Christian constitution of the self. Then I argue that Foucault, first, that Foucault saw the importance of these two puzzles and focused on extreme obedience as playing an, uh, um, sorry, a key role in, its, uh, in a possible resolution. Secondly, I argue that in fact Foucault failed to resolve the puzzles because of his reliance on an overly voluntaristic and reflective understanding of it, um, extreme obedience as an exercise of will. And then finally, I move away from Foucault and I turn to Cassian's own thought uh, and I argue that uh, reflecting of it on the deep relation between extreme obedience and humility as kenosis, so self-emptying, affords us a way out of the puzzles. And I conclude with a few reflections on the agency at play in humble self-constitution. So first, the contrast case. I'll, uh, this is actually a condensed version of a longer paper, so uh, I took out a lot of quotes. I hope it, it will still make sense. Okay, so there are four, uh, sorry, Foucault's analysis of a stoic examination of the self uh, is presented as, sorry, that's my phone, uh, ignore it, is presented as an exercise of control over the self, which has four main features. So first, the constitution of the self as an ethical agent presupposes reflective intentions which define the goal of the action. So the intention to self-examine in general and more specific intentions such as Seneca's making an inventory of the day's deed, for example, at, every, at the end of every day, or Serenus examining his feelings about wealth or posthumous glory. The second characteristic of that Stoic model these reflective intentions involve reasons which are intelligible to the agent. So whether answerable at the time of the action or retrospectively, the question why act in that way is relevant. Seneca performs the examination of conscience because he wants to achieve ataraxia. Serenus defers to Seneca's advice because he seeks the same goal and he does not follow this advice blindly. Third feature of the Stoic examination of conscience, it requires instrumental reasoning to determine the means required to carry out the relevant intentions. And finally, and importantly, the examination is perceived by the agent as an exercise of control over the self. So Foucault, uh, Foucault's analysis indicates that this feeling of control seems to rest on two uh, factors. First, uh, sorry, the agent being confident first that the selected means are appropriate to and will bring about the chosen end. And secondly, that the agent is well suited to the task of carrying out these means. As a result, both Seneca and Serenus experience self-examination as a process in which the agent exercises ceaseless control, as Hugo puts it, the aim of a process being autonomy, quote, to establish the conditions of a sovereign control 
other will over itself, end quote. So prima facie, the Christian self-examination is similar to its Stoic counterpart under four aspects, all four aspects. It involves reflective intentions, so here's a little quote, one must execute upon oneself a constant examination. It is motivated by reasons. It involves specific means, such as the careful analysis and weighing of each thought. And it involves a feeling of control, which is evidenced by the very confident and assertive tone of the recommendations made. But this is formal. Foucault identifies, in fact, four key differences between the Christian and the Stoic examination of conscience. So first, while the Stoic examination was meant to be temporary, its Christian counterpart is never-ending. Secondly, the object of a Stoic examination was the remembrance and evaluation of past deeds. But Christ, uh, sorry, Cassian's examination bears on thoughts not deeds. Thirdly and consequently, the examination of the self is now exercised in the new form of the hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, the reason is this, since temptation threatens constantly and from the inside, agents must constantly second guess themselves. The examination is animated by, quote, a suspicion that one must bring to bear everywhere and at each instant against oneself. End quote. And finally, the aim of a Christian examination is most definitely not autonomy. Because of a fall, the soul has been weakened and is now constitutively exposed to Satan as a principle of illusion from within the inside. So Foucault tells us that discretion, discernment, the virtue best suited to the ex examination of uh, conscience, does not consist, quote, in the exercise of a reason mastering the passions that agitate the body, but in a labor of thought over itself, trying to escape the illusions and deceits that go through it, end quote. So, from these four differences emerges a profound tension between, on the one hand, the formal features of the Christian constitution of herself, and on the other hand, what the examination reveals as possible for the agent. So let me illustrate that tension by returning to uh, the first, uh, sorry, to the four features that we just looked at. So first, the agent, early Christian agents, sorry, may form intentions respect, uh, retrospect, uh, reflectively, such as examining themselves, but the trouble is that they can't trust these intentions because they cannot know whether these intentions are pure or not. Quote, how would the thought that, form its, that forms itself in the examination be sure that the one that, it, that is examined? End quote. Secondly, while their intentions are responsive to reasons, early Christian agents cannot trust these reasons because they, uh, these reasons may be mere rationalizations for reprehensible thoughts or desires. So uh, Cassian takes the example of fasting. That looks like a good intention, but it might be an instance of a lust, sorry, the, uh, quote, the lust of the spirit against the flesh, uh, namely a case in which um, the, the spirit, if you like, uh, sets the goal so high that the, that the flesh is bound to fail. And so, in fact, the intention becomes self-defeating. 
So third point, although agents may determine a number of means to carry out their intentions, they can't be sure that the means are truly appropriate to the situation and their uh, Foucault and Cassian, or Foucault on behalf of Cassian, uh, goes back to uh, the example of fasting. And the agent is not, cannot be sure either that uh, uh, he is well suited to the carrying out of such means. So there's a deep contrast between the stoic agent who trusts the citadel of his inner thoughts and early Christian agents which are haunted by the question quote, that's from Foucault, who thinks in my thought, am I not in some way deceived, end quote. That hermeneutic of, of suspicion, you've got to constantly double guess yourself and you have good reasons uh, for uh, feeling the, the pull of that imperative. So the consequence is that early Christian agents cannot rely on themselves. So what the examination of conscience reveals is that early Christian agents are by themselves incapable of carrying out the task of self-constitution. Uh, I suggest that this incapability can be analyzed in terms of two puzzles about early Christian agency. The first is what I've called the agential, uh, the puzzle of agential control. How can agents self-constitute if their primary experience of themselves is not one of control, as in, well, it says Greek, but it should be Roman in this case, as in Roman antiquity, but of relative powerlessness. What's the point of forming ethical intentions if you cannot carry out these intentions? And second puzzle, it's the puzzle of ethical expertise. Uh, and it's this, uh, the examination of conscience does not only reveal that early Christian agents cannot trust their power to carry out their intentions. It also shows that they cannot trust the goodness of their intentions. But in that case, how can agents constitute themselves as ethical agents if they cannot trust themselves to recognize and act of, uh, sorry, and act in the light of the good? So both puzzles are about agency, and both are puzzling because they point to a Munchausen problem. The early Christian constitution of the self seems to presuppose what is to be achieved, agential control and ethical expertise retrospectively. So you might think, but that, you know, it's just because we're talking about incompetent agents, uh, but that is not the case. The difficulties which are identified by the puzzles are not a, manner, a matter sorry, of a temporary or remediable incapacity. Like Augustine, Cassian believes that human beings are now constitutively unable to achieve salvation by their own efforts. And in fact, he launches a very vehement attack against those who trust in their own powers when self-examining. Here's a quote from Cassian. Many have fallen who thought themselves safe and because they thought themselves safe. More precisely, it is because they thought that this protection was owed to themselves, to their exercises, to their progress and to their strength, end quote. So to mimic Augustine's famous line in the City of God, the Stoic, the Stoic agent self-confidence is a vice in disguise. So where does this leave us? Well, with a problem. Early Christian agents are faced with a seemingly impossible ought. They must constitute themselves as ethical agent and yet left to themselves 
they are inca incapable of doing that. So what are they to do? Now, part of the answer, and it's a part I won't examine today, part of the answer has to do with the role of grace. Foucault emphasizes that. But the reason why I'm not examining it, examining it today is that obviously grace is not a matter of agency. It's not, it's out of our control. And further, Cassian was a practicing ascetic, and I find that's an interesting difference with Augustine in that respect. Uh, Cassian held that our own efforts, while not sufficient, so he was not a Pelagian, may nevertheless advance us on the way to proper self-constitution. So he thinks, if you like, that the original impulse comes from God. In that sense, he's not a Pelagian, and that whether we succeed cannot be guaranteed, and in that sense, he's not a Pelagian either. But he does think that we have something, that there is something that we can do in responding, if you like, to the call of grace. That's where the, the scope of uh, ethical agency lies. And so uh, our efforts may nevertheless advance us on the way to proper self-constitution. The main thing we can do in this respect is to seek the help of others. So Cassian holds that the agent has a temporal recourse, a recourse sorry, at his disposal. It's confession, the other side of the examination. What does that consist in? Well, each monk is required to disclose all the thoughts that the examination of conscience allows to surface to a senior who due to his greater experience and also to the grace of God will be able to do what the younger monk himself cannot do, namely exercise discretion and issue appropriate guidance. So this is where the theme of extreme, sorry, my mouse is frozen, here we are. Uh, this is where the theme of extreme obedience uh, comes in because um, the correlate of confession is extreme obedience. It's extreme because it's not due just to one senior. So I've just realized I've put one quote on the handout and I'm going to read another one, but uh, they don't contradict each other. So hopefully uh, you'll, you'll just get two for, for the price of one. So here is the one I want to read. The monk is, quote, led by the rule, led by the commands of the abbot, led by the orders of his director, even by the volitions of his, of his presence. For even though these do not issue from an elder, they have the privilege of being the volitions of others, end quote. You see why I call that extreme. So this radicalization indicates that the function of obedience far exceeds that of ensuring that the agent can make progress with self-constitution by following his confessor's orders. The way Foucault puts it, so now I've got the right quote, uh, the value of obedience is not in the content of a prescribed act, it resides in its form in the fact that one is subjected to the will of another and that one bends to that will without attaching any importance to what is willed, but by focusing on the fact that it is another who wills." End quote. So, prima facie, it seems that extreme obedience affords a formal resolution to the puzzle of ethical expertise. Why? Well, because sinful agents may constitute themselves appropriately, if they delegate, if you like, such constitution, if such constitution results from their obeying the, obeying the commands of another, more enlightened person who issues them under the light of the good. But one may worry on two counts. 
The first is that this idea leaves the puzzle of agential control intact, because how will agents who experience themselves as powerless make themselves obey in the extreme manner described? And secondly, the solution may involve, may involve a regress in relation to the puzzle of ethical expertise itself, because since sinful agents can't trust themselves nor their intentions to be good, then how can they know that they are obeying for the right reasons? So in short, how can agents whose will is fundamentally corrupt become virtuous by willing themselves to obey? And Cassian, as Cassian worries, free will would never lead us to attain true perfection. So Foucault's implicit, Foucault's implicit answer is ambiguous. On the one hand, he acknowledges the difficulty of characterizing extreme obedience as willless, sorry, by characterizing extreme obedience as willness, willlessness. Uh, the, will, the agent wills nothing, and so the corrupt will has no influence on the self-constitution. Self but on the other hand, he holds that such willlessness can result from a paradoxical self-negating exercise of the will. But what this consists in is not clear, and perhaps an indication of this is that in the space of second of stage, Foucault presents no less than 13 definitions. So I now turn to these with a view to trying to sort them out <laughs> in as much as I can, and mostly uh, to see whether they allow us to understand extreme obedience in a way that uh, affords us a way out of the, of the puzzle. So that takes me to section two, extreme obedience as a paradoxical exercise of will. So I've arranged the definitions in three sets. Uh, there is some overlapping, but I, I won't go in, in, into this now. Uh, and I attend to each of the sets in turns. I think I've done exactly the opposite of what I wanted to do. Here we are. So the first set is uh, what you might call willing not to will. And it includes the following, willing not to will, to modify one's will, to exercise one's own will upon and against itself, a relentless determination not to will anymore, uh, and not to grant one's own will any legitimacy or any justification to will. So the common thread in this set is that extreme obedience would result in self-denial. The will wills not to will. So the most immediate way to understand such self-denial consists in construing it as a piece of instrumental reasoning in which not to will is the end of the action, so the will going against itself, as Foucault puts it, and willing the means to achieve such ends, so the will, as Foucault puts it, exercising itself upon itself. This instrumental control is broadly in line with an, with an understanding of willing readily available to Cassian, namely Aristotle's notion of proiresis, the power to deliberate about the means appropriate to a des desired end and to act according to such deliberation. So on this reading, the relentless determination not to will anymore that Foucault mentioned makes sense as a particularly intense application of a means towards the end and correlatively the mortification, literally the becoming dead of the will, appears as a result of the will having successfully turned its own power against itself. Now the problem with this instrumental reading is that it involves a practical contradiction. Uh, 
because it's not possible to exclude an act of type X in this case, in this case, sorry, winning by performing X. So I cannot carry out the intention not to will by willing because in so willing, I would do exactly what I mean not to do. So call this the means and practical contradiction. A version of this practical uh, contradiction is operative in the last expression of the group, namely uh, not to grant uh, one to one's will any legitimacy nor any justification to will. Why is that? Well, because willing appears again as the means not to grant and the withdrawing of subjective legitimacy from the will, the end. But if I were to try to carry out the intention not to grant my will any legitimacy by an act of will, then the successful implementation of a will would require of a means, sorry, would require the very legitimacy that such implementation is meant to deny. So in other words, I could only de deny legitimacy to my will effectively if my will was taken to be sovereign in the very act of denying itself legitimacy. And so the injunction not to grant one will any legitimacy is self-invalidating call that the legitimacy practical contradiction. So both practical contradictions make it difficult to characterize extreme obedience coherently as willing not to will. So perhaps in recognition of that difficulty, Foucault proposes another way, another set of characterizations of uh, extreme obedience as an, as an exercise of will. So it's two subsets which um, examine obedience from symmetrical standpoints. On the one hand, you have to the negative set, if you like, to renounce the smallest of one's own volitions, to renounce one's own will, to renounce willing by oneself. And the second subset is the positive side of that, to accept to undergo this will, to be ductile and transparent in relation to it to accept everything that the director wants and to bear all things from him, to accept the will of the other as the principle of all action. So a lot depends on how one understands the two key terms, renouncing and accepting. Foucault glosses on acceptance as, quote, the will to accept the direction, and so implicitly considers acceptance as an act of will. Since renunciation is the opposite of acceptance, then it would make sense to suppose that it is achieved by the same means, namely willing. So acceptance and renunciation then become implementations by the will of a decision. It's in that sense that Edward of England renounced the crown to marry Ronnie Simpson, or that one accepts the terms of a marriage contract. However, on such a reading, then the first set is faced with a means and practical contradiction and the second set with a legitimacy practical contradiction. Why? Well, because renouncing one's own will and its cognates then becomes specific, specific instances sorry, of willing not to will and we're back to the difficulty just examined. I cannot renounce my own will by an act of will. And conversely, Accepting the will of another person as a principle of all action is a case of a legitimacy practical contradiction because it implicitly reasserts the authority of my own will in the very act that is supposed to cancel it out. If the will of the other is taken as a principle of all action because I accept it as such in the sense of willing myself to accept it, 
then ultimately it is my own will which remains the principle of my actions. So the third set takes a different uh, approach. It uh, comprises the following characterizations, to will to oppose nothing, neither one's own will nor one's reason, nor any interest, even if it appears legitimate, and to will not to oppose or, resil, or resist. That's the negativist uh, approach, if you like. So in this case, there's no practical contradiction between the means willing and the end not to oppose anything. It is perfectly possible to will not to oppose anything. But there is a different problem, which is that there's no reason to think that not to oppose anything would by itself result in obedience. It would more likely result in inertia, in not doing anything at all, including obeying. So you could fix the difficulty by subordinate, sorry, subordinating the will not to oppose anything to another overarching intention, namely that of obeying in everything. And that's exactly what Foucault does by relating the will to oppose nothing to the will to accept the direction. So in this case, extreme obedience becomes voluntary submission. And if we follow Foucault's previous analysis of the early Christian constitution of the self, then this would result from the formation of a reflective intention to obey, justified by reasons accessible to the agent, so to you know, improve my self ethically, carried out by specific means, and involving a feeling of control in the paradoxical form of allowing another person to determine my course of action. However, sorry, uh, this account of extreme obedience as voluntary submission remains vulnerable to both puzzles. The sinful agent cannot be sure that he will be able to carry out his intention to obey, nor that his intention is genuinely good. And additionally, as we'll see soon, this characterization of extreme obedience as reflective voluntary submission does not fit the phenomenon as it is described by Cassian. So I now leave Foucault and I turn to Cassian himself in the hope you know, that there's something that Foucault missed which will help us to find a solution uh, to, uh, the, uh, to, to, to the early Christian puzzles of the constitution of the self. And that takes me to section three, extreme obedience, humility, and kenosis. So how should we understand extreme obedience? Cassian's answer is unequivocal. No one can obey an elder, but one who has been filled with the love of God and perfected in the virtue of humility. And that is also true for discretion, the virtue that's central to um, the examination. To discretion, said he, is only secured by true humility. And of this humility, the first proof is given by not trusting at all in your own judgment, but accepting their decisions in all points. So the key to understanding extreme obedience and to solving the, puzzle of the puzzles of the early Christian self-constitution is humility. But what is humility? So Foucault did see the role of humility, but he understood it as a self-relation. Here's what he says, in humility, I am aware that I am so low that I recognize myself as inferior to anyone. It's a definition which echoes the um, Oxford English Dictionary, 
according to which to be humble is, quote, to have a low estimate of one's importance, worthiness, or merits, marked by the absence of self-assertion or self-exaltation, end quote. But my worry is that this misses the point, because for Cassian, just like for Augustine, humility is not primarily a relation to the self or to others, it's primarily a relation to God. Or rather, humility as a relation to God is what mediates appropriately the relation to the self and to others, just as love of God is what mediates appropriately love of the self and love of the neighbor. So the worry is that because he, does, he did not see the importance of God as a medium term and understood humility in an implicitly secular manner, then Foucault prevented himself from grasping appropriately the relation between extreme obedience and humility. So we need to turn to the religious meaning of humility. And the canonical text is the one uh, that I've put here. It's Philippians uh, 2.6-8. to uh, Sorry, I've lost it. So, Christ, being in the form of God, emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's a passage that Cassian uh, quotes um, many times, that I've noted six times. So Christ's humility, Christ's humility shows itself as kenosis from kenoing to empty. So minimally construed, kenosis has two symmetrical and inseparable aspects. On the one hand, it's a self-emptying, whereby Christ set aside the form of attributes of divinity. Uh, he emptied himself, being made in the likeness of men. So such setting aside is not a one-off occurrence, but a process of humbling, which extended throughout Christ's life, from the incarnation to his death on the cross, which was then considered um, particularly ignominious. So on the other hand, the self-emptying of kenosis is at the same time a giving away, whereby the possibility of mankind salvation is secured. So the emptying of the self is a pouring forth of love. Humility and charity are intrinsically uh, connected. And crucially, Kenosis manifests obedience in its most extreme form. By humbling himself, Christ became obedient unto death. So I propose that extreme obedience is best understood not as an exercise of will, but as a pre-reflective imitation within the limits of the ontological distance between creatures and their creature, creator of Christ's kenosis. There's textual evidence for that. The uh, imitation of Christ is at the heart of Cassian's views on humility and obedience. Uh, he specifically highlights the exemplary character of Christ's kenosis in the following passage. The Lord prayed in the character of man, which he had taken, that he might give us a form of prayer as other things also by his example, saying thus, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. End quote. So formally, Christ's address to his Father, not as I will, but as thou wilt, affords a resolution to the ethical puzzle of the early Christian constitution, 
The self does not will anything, not to align its will on God's, not even not to will. Like the apostle, it becomes a vessel for the will of God, a metaphor which is recurrent for Cassian. The function of a vessel is to receive its contents without denaturing them and to pour them forth. So that's made possible by kenosis, through which agents empty themselves of everything that is their own, and that's basically their sins and their sinful thoughts, and become entirely attentive and responsive to the will of God. As Cassian explains, humility cannot possibly be acquired without giving up everything. And as long as a man is a stranger to this, he cannot possibly attain the verse. But what does it mean to give up everything? And in particular, could not this giving up of everything be itself conceived of as an exercise of will? In other words, as we're carrying out through ascetic techniques of an intention to empty oneself. And in this case, the emptying of one's sinful desires would become an exercise in self-mastery in the form of extreme self-denial. And that denial will ultimately, would ultimately remain an egocentric prohibition with the self, and it would be faced with another practical contradiction, namely, one cannot turn away from the self, as is required by kenosis, by focusing on it so as to empty it. So the answer to this worry resides, I think, in the other aspect of kenosis, namely the giving away out of love. Cassian says the following, true self-denial is implanted in us by the love of Christ. So the idea is that self-denial does not prepare for but arises from our love of Christ. It's not a propedeutic to loving Christ. So returning to the example of Gethsemane may help us understand this particular point. The thought is that Christ did not seek to empty himself prior to sacrificing himself out of love. His love expressed itself through the self-emptying of kenosis. The self-emptying was not a separate act. It was the correlate of the outward-facing movement of Christ's love. So, in a similar way, early agents do not first intend to empty themselves of their sins and sinful thoughts so as to love God and others. The loving is the self-emptying. Uh, so, the more we give away of ourselves in service out of love for others, the more we are emptied of egocentric concerns. So if you think of a sec, I tried to think of a secular example and I thought of parenthood. You know, most people show a decrease in self-centeredness after they have become parents, but arguably it's not because they've made, they formed an intention to become left-centered. It's the correlate of the parents having become responsive through love to the needs of their child. And so the self-emptying in the same way is the correlate of the love of Christ in kenosis. So to return to a met metaphor of a vessel, just as the level in a jug drops when the water is poured out in offering, in the same way the emptying of a self is proportional to the agent's love for God until the self is so over-directed that there's no place for self-concern anymore. The resulting appropriately sorry, constituted self is what I call a kenotic self, a self that is emptied of its egocentric contents by 
its love for the divine. If you wanted a, a slogan, it would be something like a self without the ego. So for such a self, to obey a command is to love Christ in the other person. And here's a quote from uh, Cassian. A high brother, when commanded to load 10 baskets on his shoulder and hawk them through the streets for sale, a duty, sorry, that's me, it's a duty that Cassian deems mean and unusual for a man of, of good birth and wealth, so return to the quote, paid no attention to the dignity of the thing and carried this out with the utmost zeal and trampling underfoot all shame and confusion out of love for Christ and for his name's sake, end quote. So importantly, extreme obedience carried out in, in this way is a spontaneous expression of love. It does not rely on, in, on conscious intention forming, but it's achieved pre-reflectively. So here are two uh, examples which come back uh, in Cassian's work. One is the Blessed John. So uh, when the Blessed John was asked by his beloved senior to uh, throw this cruise of oil out of a window, here is what John did, quote, he flew upstairs when summoned and threw it out of a window and cast it down to the ground and broke it in pieces without any thought or consideration of the folly of a command of their daily wants and bodily infirm infirmity of their poverty and the trials and difficulties of a wretched desert in which, even if they had got the money for it, oil of that quality, once lost, could not be procured or replaced." End quote. So it's manifest that Cassian only lists the reasons why John might, have, might not have complied with a command to emphasize the immediacy of the response. John flew upstairs. So here's another example. It's a monk who, Quote, practicing the writer's art, hears the knock on his door which summons him to prayer. Although he may have just begun to form a letter, he does not venture to finish it, but runs out with the utmost speed at the very moment when the sound of a knocking reaches his ears, without even waiting to finish the letter he has begun. End quote. So here too, Cassian emphasizes both the immediacy and the spontaneity of a monk's response to hearing the knock at the very moment, at full speed, without even waiting to finish the letter. So the formation of even a negative intention, such as not to oppose anything, as in Foucault's account, would be one thought to many. But what about the uh, second objection? What about the imitative process from which extreme obedience is meant to result? Couldn't that imitation of Christ's kenosis itself be construed as a result of a deliberate intentional process manifest in each instance of obedient comportment? In which case both puzzles would arise again for how could agents trust their power to execute their intention to imitate Christ? and their goodness in forming such an intention. You know, who knows, they might deep down have formed the intention just to uh, outshine uh, their uh, other brothers, for example. So it's certainly possible to construe certain cases of imitation as relying on explicit intention forming. A comedian who imitates a celebrity will deliberately and repeatedly try to imitate specific turns of phrase, turn, uh, gestures, or intonation. But this endogenous reflective model is not the only possible one. So here I turned, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name actually, 
Jake, Jake, I'm sorry, Jake does this. Uh, it's easier to see it written. So uh, he shows that well-socialized adults imitate each other by responding to clues picked up from their environment without these clues being thematized and without any deliberate intention to respond to them. So some of these clues can be directly observable, uh, as when, unbeknownst to ourselves, we mimic a person's tone of voice or physical stance. But they can also be more abstract. On what uh, Jekyll's twist called the high road to imitation, the relevant clues are more, most often personality traits inferred from the observation of another person's comportment or stereotypes, patterns of comportment available in one's cultural environment and implicitly recognized by the agent. So in both cases, a process of behavioral adjustment ensures and choose in which one's behavioral patterns are often subtly brought in line with the behavior of another person. Sorry, that was a quote. So for example, we may pre-reflectively imitate a friend's perceived generosity because we saw her repeatedly give alms to the poor or make donations to charities. So Cassian seems to follow a similar exogenous road when he, when he reflects on imitation. He sees imitation not as a reflective application to the self of a conceptual model, but as a practice patterned on the life of Christ and the apostles. So commenting on the fact that Paul, while preaching at the Church of Ephesus, took his chair of the neighbor sorry, needed to provide food and water, Cassian attributes to the apostle the following thought, end quote. He, Paul, laid bare the reason why he imposed such labor on himself. But we might, says he, give a pattern to you to imitate us, end quote. So more generally, when reflecting on how sinners may become appropriately constituted ethical agents, Cassian notes that they must have the inspiration of the Lord, he draws us towards the way of salvation by his own act, end quote. So we are not given reasons to form appropriate attentions to imitate Christ. We are meant to respond directly to the draw of his actions. Such draw can be glossed upon in the light of Jekastri's high road to imitation as resting on the agents implicitly recognizing and internalizing character traits or patterns of comportment understood as worthy. And both the example-based teaching and the tightly knit community life in the synobium would have trained monks to respond pre-reflectively su to such patterns by internalizing them. So imitation is best understood not as the result of an explicit intention to imitate, but as a pre-reflective practice whereby agents develop patterns of comportment in response to the clues and models that they pick up from the Gospels and from their, their ethical environment. So that takes me to the conclusion and putting together the threads of, um, of this attempt to understand early Christian self-constitution. So we can now return to the puzzles of early Christian self-constitution. So recall that the puzzle of agential control arose because early Christian agents cannot trust in their power to carry out the intentions they set to themselves. But now what we've learned is that since humble agents have emptied themselves from any egocentric concerns, 
They do not have any goals of their own that they could intend or fail to carry out. And further, they do not act ethically by forming and carrying out effective intentions, but by responding directly to the commands given. In fact, the most accomplished agents, like Abbot Pinifius, do not even need to be commanded. They are able to read off and respond to ethical solicitations directly from their environment. Correlatively, the immediacy of such responses, combined with the absence of reflective intentions and of personal goals, does not allow for experiences of powerlessness to arise. Agents interact smoothly with their ethical environment. And that now helps us with the puzzle of ethical expertise. Recall that the problem was that morally corrupt agents can't trust the goodness of their intentions. But the humble agents let go of their egocentric desires. They become transparent vessels for the will of God. And so, freed from their inward curvature by the imitation of Christ's kenosis, they become fully attuned to the ethical solicitations of their environment. So the thought is that the puzzles of early Christian constitution are not so much solved as dissolved by an appropriate understanding of extreme obedience as grounded in humanity. In letting themselves be governed by others and ultimately by God, early Christian agents give up on becoming ethical agents through self-determination, but they do not give up on becoming ethical agents. Paradoxically, the surrender of extreme obedience liberates the self from itself, orients agents towards others through love, and so allows them to become ethically accomplished. But there is one worry, and it's the following. In, one might ask, in which sense do obedient agents do anything? How is a vessel an agent? And why is not extreme obedience best understood on the model of a reflex? a knee-jerk reaction inculcated through habits and discipline, almost like a Pavlovian, uh, the result of Pavlovian training, if you like. So one way to answer this question is to emphasize that the responsiveness of the accomplished ethical agent is not blind automatism. An, ex an inexperienced agent, like an, such as a novice, would not be able um, would not be capable, sorry, of John's attentiveness, devotion, and wholeheartedness. John's fluid responsiveness to the ethical solicitations of his environment is made possible by his pre-reflective practical understanding, which discloses the solicitations to him as solicitations. And this understanding in turn was developed in John's case through, through continuous engagement with self, others and God, by means of monastic techniques, in particular silence, vigil and prayer. It is this understanding which allows both the, ethical, the relevant ethical solicitation to exert maximal traction and which lights up the best way of answering them. So without the right environment, the ethical solicitations would be much harder to respond to, but without the right understanding, they would not register on the agent in the first place. So... John's ethical responsiveness does not arise merely causally from certain solicitations obtaining, such as the giving of a command, but from these solicitations being pre-reflectively understood 
on the background of a set of personal skills and abilities developed through the years. So being a human vessel, while uh, neither a case of self-determination nor something that can be done at will, is nevertheless not an instance of passivity because it requires an appropriate and ethically trained un understanding of self and world. And in this sense, John's responsiveness is an ethical accomplishment for which he can be praised, as his senior does indeed praise him, and for which, within the early Christian context, other agents can be blamed should they fail to develop it. Thank you.